I'll ask you to turn with me, please, to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. Now, as many of you have, um, have heard and as Ev prayed, I will be going to the Philippines. And actually, it's going to be on Wednesday. Wednesday evening, I'll be heading for, to Pearson Airport. And I'd appreciate your prayers. I will be joining um, a vision trip that is sponsored by International Justice Mission. Um, and we'll be looking at the work that International Justice Mission is doing in the Philippines. And I know it's been a summer of travel for me. I'm going because Crestwick in 2018 had given about $100,000 to help rescue children from online sexual exploitation in the Philippines. And I'm going so that I could see how that money was used. So, Lord willing, I'll be back um, the evening of August 19, and I will be telling you on the 20th of August how that money was spent. Interestingly, I am going back to the Philippines um, exactly having spent exactly half my life outside the Philippines. I left the Philippines in 1997, and I'm 52, so I've been outside the Philippines for 26 years. And my time of being more or less a vagabond has given me an appreciation of our identity as exiles. Or as Peter would call us in 1 Peter, resident aliens or sojourners in the world. The language of resident alien is particularly meaningful to me because when I was pastoring in Jamaica, I think I told you before, I actually had an alien registration card. Um, <laughs> in Jamaica, which explains a few things. <laughs> so the question that Sinclair Ferguson raises when it comes to the book of Daniel of how do we sing the Lord's song in exile has been resonating with me for the better part of my life. And in the scripture reading this morning, Peter's response to the question, how do we sing the Lord's song in exile, is this. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. And in this passage, in fact, through the whole book, we recognize that Daniel's life embodies what it means to live a good life among pagans that proclaims the excellencies of our Savior. So, as we come to Daniel chapter 6, we recognize that by this time, Nabonidus has surrendered, Babylon has fallen, Belshazzar of Daniel 5 is dead. The Babylonian Empire has fallen and an inferior emperor, 
Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire has taken over, just as God had told Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. We are told in Daniel chapter 6 that Darius the Mede is now in charge. And he established a system of government with 120 satraps. Not satraps, you golfers. Satraps, think of them as governors who were responsible for a certain region. And these 120 governors scattered throughout the, the Medo-Persian Empire were supervised by three administrators. The system was designed to maintain political stability, to prevent uprisings against the government, and to ensure the taxes were properly collected throughout the empire. That's very, very important. Now, it goes without saying that an administrator needed to be highly competent and scrupulously honest. And in the providence of God, we are told that Daniel was one of the three administrators. And that's a bit of a reversal of fortunes, isn't it? Because in chapter 5, he was in Belshazzar's doghouse. Now, Daniel is raised to high position again. And we recognize that God was still protecting Daniel through the change of political administrations and continuing to direct Daniel's career so that he could seek the welfare of the city. And as an exile, Daniel was continuing to be God's agent for good. So he demonstrates to us that, you know, you don't need to work for a Christian organization in order to serve God. And he also demonstrates that you could maintain your integrity and live for God even in the worst of workplaces. And you notice that he did not have to finagle his way into promotions. It was God directing his career. And that's the beauty of living for God and depending on him. Your safety and security does not rest on people or politics. Your safety and security rests on God's faithful providence. Now, relying on God doesn't mean you get the pass or you get to be lazy. In fact, knowing God has your back actually motivates us to be even more diligent. After all, we're not just serving men. We are serving God wherever he has placed us. And Daniel, we know, was a faithful steward of God's gifts all his life. In Daniel chapter 1, we are told that God gave Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wisdom, intelligence, enabled them to excel. And so it's not surprising in verse 3 that we are told that Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And that's a challenge for all of us, isn't it? Daniel was known for excellence in his workplace. And shouldn't that how we would be known in our workplace? After all, we serve the Lord Christ, as Colossians chapter 2 tells us. And at the very least, our colleagues should know that we work to the best of the abilities God gave us. And we're not working for the promotion or the recognition. We are working for the glory of God, who is our audience of one. 
And it's something we're able to do because we're relying on the Holy Spirit for wisdom and strength. I think we recognize we definitely need the Lord's empowering to be able to serve faithfully and with excellence because doing what's right in a sinful, fallen world will get you into trouble. It's just a matter of time. In fact, in Daniel's case, it was the very plan of Darius to put him in charge of the whole kingdom that got him into trouble. He, it incurred the ire of his colleagues. Now, we, we don't know why they didn't want Darius to be over them. But you can imagine jealousy and envy were probably significant factors. Perhaps one of the administrators, one of the, three, one of the other three administrators wanted the job. Or perhaps his colleagues knew that Daniel would not let them get away with any shenanigans. So, whatever their reasons, they started looking for a way to discredit Daniel and derail the plans of Darius. Look at verse 4. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. Now, just take a step back and imagine what that looks like. 120 governors instructing their staff, find dirt on Daniel. Two other administrators who have access to all levels of government, to all the records in the Medo-Persian Empire. I mean, this is worse than, an, than a CRA audit. This is completely invasive. And the only goal is to find something against Daniel. But much to their dismay, we are told in verse 5, they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Isn't that wonderful? By this time, Daniel must have been in government service for over 60 years. And in all those 60 years, there were no skeletons in his closet, no scandals to uncover, no influence peddling, no abuse of authority, no improper vacations or benefits, not even a hint of impropriety. And you notice, they could not even pin any negligence on a, on a man who was working at over 80 years old. No negligence. Nothing fell be between the cracks. No, oh shoot, I forgot. Moments, he was faithful to fulfill his responsibilities. I mean, that's why Darius wanted to promote him in the first place, right? His excellence was not a facade. His work could withstand the most critical scrutiny. His life was beyond reproach. And that shouldn't be surprising because that's how the people of God are supposed to be, isn't it? We belong to God. We are set apart for his purposes. So we're supposed to be excellent workers, radically committed to righteousness, regardless of the cost. 
The portrayal of Daniel in this passage embodies Eugene Peterson's definition of discipleship as a long obedience in the same direction. And in fact, the stories in this book demonstrates Daniel's lifelong commitment to living in obedient relationship with God. It began in chapter 1 with this determination, along with his friends, to keep their hearts loyal to Yahweh when Nebuchadnezzar tried to turn them into Babylonians. And interestingly enough, they adapted to the culture without embracing Babylonian values that violate Scripture. And in the midst of his government service, Daniel continuously sought to point Nebuchadnezzar to God and spoke the truth to Belshazzar. So much so that pagans like Nebuchadnezzar and the queen mother recognized that the spirit of the holy gods was in Daniel. Even they recognized there was something different about him. And we need to recognize that the faithfulness of Daniel was sustained and built in the daily decisions of his life. He and his friends were committed to glorifying God in every way, in the face of social pressure, in the face of the promptings of ambition, and the real possibility of death. So that their lives bore witness to the greatness of Israel's God. And in the highly competitive environment of Babylon, they showed that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And they carried that commitment to Yahweh into their service in the Medo-Persian Empire so that their commitment to God was evident to the people around them. And that's why when Daniel's envious colleagues were frustrated in their attempts to find something against him, they concluded in verse 5, oh my goodness, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. And so they decided to manipulate Darius into making a proclamation that would get Daniel into trouble. Verse 6 to verse 8. They approached him as a group and said, Making Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed. And you notice the lie, right? Obviously, it's all but Daniel since Daniel had been excluded from their meetings. I mean, you don't include the guy that you're trying to get. They've all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Now, just like Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue, the edict was actually a savvy political maneuver because praying to Darius would unify the empire and build loyalty to Darius. And he wasn't even making himself into a god. He was only setting himself up as the sole mediator between the people and the gods. It would build loyalty to him, and it would not bother anyone in the empire except, well, Daniel and faithful Jews like him. And that was the point, wasn't it? 
The satraps and administrators really only cared about discrediting Daniel so that Darius would not promote him over them. And much to their delight, we are told in verse 9, Darius agreed, and it was written into law. It was put in writing. So now the question is, how would Daniel respond? Well, look at verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. In other words, well, Daniel just continued his normal practice of prayer. He didn't even bother to hide because he knew that the edict was meant to target him. Scholars have recognized that this story is what you call a tale of court conflict. Yes, Darius made the decree, but there was politics, office politics, and we've all been there, right? There was office politics going on. The author of the passage emphasizes the goal was nothing less than to discredit Daniel. So even if Daniel had managed to escape notice in the 30 days, his opponents would keep coming after him. And so, well, Daniel might as well face the challenge head on. And sure enough, in verse 11, we are told, these men went as a group. Imagine 120 governors and satraps and two satraps coming together to spy on Daniel. And they found Daniel praying and asking God for help. And so, of course, what do they do? Well, they rush to the king and tattle on Daniel. But you notice they were so eager to eliminate Daniel, they made sure that, Daniel, that Darius could not spare Daniel. Look at verse 12. They went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? They made sure. King, you remember the terms of the decree, right? And when the king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they spring the trap on Darius. Um... Well, in that case, King Darius, Daniel, verse 13, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. If that sounds familiar, that's the same accusation that was leveled against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Golden Statue incident, wasn't it? These exiles don't pay attention to you, O king. And Nebuchadnezzar got really angry with them. But look at verse 14. There's a little bit of a twist here. Because instead of being angry, Darius, we are told in verse 14, was greatly distressed. And he was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. 
he realized he'd been had. He didn't want Daniel to die. And isn't that amazing? Wouldn't it be great if you and I were such great workers, our boss would be ready to move heaven and earth to keep us? But finally, in verse 15, the satraps and administrators reminded Darius, Oh, king, remember, the law can't be changed. You got to get rid of Daniel, king. <laughs> Isn't that ironic? The king was a prisoner of his own decree. He was supposed to have absolute power, but his absolute power meant absolutely nothing. And he had no recourse but to order that Daniel be thrown into the lion's den. And as he gave the order, he told Daniel, verse 16, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. You know, even more amazing and more wonderful than Daniel's, Daniel being appreciated by Darius was the fact that Darius knew where Daniel's loyalties were. May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. See, that's what witness is about. We point away from ourselves to our God whom we serve. And so Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, and its mouth was sealed with Darius' signet ring and the rings of the nobles. And the writer does something very interesting here. He heightens the suspense by focusing our attention on Darius and not on Daniel. You notice Daniel is silent all throughout. He doesn't even protest against the decree. When he was brought before, when, the, when Darius was going to send him to the lion's den, Daniel says absolutely nothing. And even here, we have no idea what's going on in the lion's den. Are they having a picnic? Are they, having, are they fighting over Daniel? We don't know. What the writer does is he makes us walk in the shoes of Darius. And Darius, I can tell you, had a miserable night in his magnificent palace. He was so worried he couldn't eat. No amount of entertainment could distract him. <laughs> He was so stressed, he couldn't sleep. He tossed and turned, waiting for morning. And as soon as it was dawn, we are told that he ran to the lion's den. And you can imagine Darius running to the lion's den, hoping against hope that he would hear more than a lion's roar or even a lion snoring. And with anguished voice in verse 20, he called to Daniel. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? And then in verse 21, to Darius' great delight, he heard Daniel's voice, not saying, ouch, but saying, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. As it turns out, Darius, Daniel had a much better night than Darius. He probably had more sleep than Darius. 
And you notice that God had turned Daniel's confinement into a trial by ordeal. So that Daniel's survival showed him innocent before both God and Darius. And the very response of Daniel showed that he was not, there was no truth to the accusation that he, he disregarded Darius. He was still honoring Darius. He was not disrespecting Darius. This was not about civil disobedience. This was faithfulness to God. He was still acting in the best interests of Darius. And God vindicated Daniel as he stayed faithful to Yahweh. And overjoyed, Darius had Daniel lifted out of the lion's den. And notice what verse 23 says. No wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And before you suggest that the lions probably had been fed before Daniel was thrown in or they were too old to bother Daniel, they had no more teeth. Look at verse 24. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, while they were still in the air, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. So you realize that while Daniel was in the lion's den, they were actually licking their chops and thinking, boy, I wish I could have this guy, but I can't because my mouth is shut. I am so hungry. These were ferocious lions eager for prey, so much so that when the next morsel of food was dropped, they didn't even have time to touch the ground. What's the point? God was faithful to protect Daniel from mortal danger. And God was glorified through Daniel's faithfulness. Because seeing how God had saved Daniel, Darius made the following proclamation. Look at verse 26 and 27. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom... People must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heaven and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And that's why we trust in God, isn't it? Because our God is faithful to save. And that's the point of the story. We serve a God who is sovereign over all. No matter what the circumstances look like, he is still in control and he is faithful to save. I hope you recognize that this passage is not intended to lay a guilt trip on any of us. Certainly, Daniel shows us how we are to live as exiles in hostile territory. And as such, it confronts our infidelity. None of us measure up to this. But in confronting our infidelity, it calls us to repentance. But in calling us to repentance, the text points us back 
to God, who is our only hope. Please remember, this book was written to exiles who were struggling to be faithful. And the message of the book of Daniel is, to, is meant to reassure us that God is faithful. He will take care of his people. And brothers and sisters, we are just like those exiles struggling to be faithful. We may want to dare to be a Daniel, but we're more like Esther, who hid her identity and compromised our faith. We struggle to be faithful. We just can't do it on our own. Unlike Daniel, we all have skeletons in our closet. We all have a past we regret. And in fact, we have a present that we're often ashamed of. Because we're a lot like Belshazzar. We tend to be proud. We tend to be stubborn. We tend to be disobedient and self-serving. But that's the wonder of God and His grace, isn't it? Our God isn't just able to save from the power of lions. He saves us from His wrath. That's the wonder of the gospel. See, even at our best, we are all failures who cannot, will not, never will measure up to the standards of God. Look, even Daniel desperately needed a Savior. And that's why the Bible doesn't end with Daniel. The Bible goes on to tell us, how the Son of God humbled himself to become a man so that he may pay for our sins. This text tells us that we need a Savior. And praise God, our sovereign King, who ought to condemn us, instead laid down his life for us. And we can call ourselves His people, His beloved children, not because we're worthy, but because through faith in Jesus Christ, we are accepted as His children. And He has given us His Spirit to renovate our hearts. And He is the one who empowers us to be faithful. That's why we can say that God is truly our Savior. Christ is our Savior. And His grace towards us that never fails, never wanes, never ceases, that same grace motivates us to cling to Him and live for Him. So brothers and sisters, let us rejoice in our Savior's unfailing love and understanding better the depths of his infinite love. Let us live no longer for ourselves, but for him who for us died and rose again. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you We thank you that we come before you as failures. 
as people who are in some ways the exact opposite of Daniel. People who hide our faith, people who fail to live out our faith, people who, despite our best intentions, deny our faith in both small and big ways. People who struggle to do what's right because up to now our desire for pleasure is still way stronger than our desire for holiness. In fact, as we come before you today confessing our sin, we, we recognize that you know our failures better than we even know ourselves. Because even when we have succeeded in doing good, you know the false motives, you know the pride, you know the self-serving that tarnishes even the good that we do. But we thank you, Father, that despite knowing all this, you have not stopped loving us. Because you chose to love us before time began. And fully knowing that we would never meet your standard, the second person of the triune God gave himself for us. So that we are accepted in your sight. Not because of anything we have done, but because Christ is our righteousness. And we thank you, Father, that you have not even stopped there. That because you love us, your spirit is at work in us. Changing our desires, empowering us to live for you, to do good works. And you take pleasure in our feeble good works. The way a father would delight in his five-year-old son's drawing. Not because it is artistically amazing, but because it is a gift from a beloved child. Lord, thank you for your love for us. And thank you for the hope that we have that one day we don't we will not just dare to be a Daniel, we'll be better than Daniel because we will be like Jesus Christ. We thank you that your spirit is at work to make this a reality. And though you may, it will take all our lives, we thank you, Father, that it will be the case. For you have promised that when we see Christ, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And we will all rejoice to your glory for the work that you have done. And so in the meantime, Father, as we live in the already not yet, as we live as your people in a hostile world, we ask that you'd help us to lean on your spirit 
to rejoice in our weakness, knowing with the Apostle Paul that when we are weak, then we know the power of Christ at work within us. May we know your grace. May you know, we know your strength so that we may live godly lives that point people to our Savior. This we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.